Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Great to speak to you from yet another airport. So if you hear a boarding announcement in the background, that's probably me uh, back on stages and doing a lot of public speaking, therefore traveling a ton at the moment. Super excited to be back as the world opens up again, uh, and also thrilled that we can continue to do these interviews to share some really cool insights from pretty amazing people. So today, I wanted to share an interview that I did with Barry Shepley. Barry was Canada's national triathlon team coach in the early 90s, and he has coached hundreds of people to national championship titles, Pan Am Games medals, world championship medals, as well as successful completions of the Hawaii Ironman and Boston Marathon. Barry was selected to go to the 2000 Sydney Olympics, where triathlon made its debut as a full medal sport, and Canada won a gold medal there in a performance that no one will ever forget by Simon Whitfield, who has also been on this podcast. Further, Barry has been the voice of the International Triathlon Union and has announced races all over the world, including multiple Olympic Games. As a board member for triathlon, co-founder of Ontario Triathlon, and the former chair of the Coaches Association of Ontario, there's few people that have contributed as much to the sport as Barry. I've done loads of triathlons, and I am deeply grateful for what he has done. Barry has also was also the founder of the Kids of Steel Triathlon Program, where many of the top triathletes in the world got their start. And my children have both done various different events at the Kids of Steel, so they've benefited from that as well. In this conversation, Barry and I talk about his new book, which is super exciting. It's called Chasing Greatness. And just basically what Barry's learned from being in and around and coaching some of the top people in the world over the years, but then also applying that knowledge to help many people just get fitter and healthier in their day-to-day lives. Pursuing triathlon more as a fun pursuit rather than as an international competitor. So with any further delays, let us get started and please enjoy my conversation with Barry Shepley. Barry, thanks so much for joining us. It's awesome to have you here. Well, I'm at uh, the C3 James Dick Beach and life couldn't be better. It's uh, about 88 degrees and a nice little tailwind and people are loving the beach, swimming and paddling. So life doesn't get any better than this. That's pretty awesome. And you've obviously been doing this for a ton of time, helping people get fit, get healthy, perform, win Olympic championships, win, sorry, win Olympic, win the Olympics, win championships and Ironman. Like you've got an unbelievable coaching record. So tell us about the origin story. How'd you get into coaching? How'd you get into triathlon? Give us the background. Well, it's really simple. I picked the wrong parents uh, at birth. So unless I was going to take up five pin bowling, uh, I was probably not going to be able to do that as a, as an athlete. And um, so I, I've, you know, I've done Ironman and marathons and all that kind of stuff really slowly. And so, you know, there was a certain satisfaction of getting to that finishing line, as everyone does. Uh, but I had this kind of, I call it a high-performance brain in a low-performance body. So uh, I, eventually, I quickly realized that a lot of this, if I really, truly wanted high performance, it was going to be assisting other people. And so I spent the last almost 40 years uh, of my life, I'm now 59, and through my teens, all the way through McMaster University in my early 20s, it was all about learning how to coach another person. I used all my time at McMaster, and you know, including my time in grad school, on, on how to become fitter, faster, safely, consistent, redo it again the next year, not just a one-time basis, but how to have you know, 50, 60. And uh, you know, I've got a guy right now, Bob Nucky, 
who in another couple of months uh, theoretically is going to requalify for Hawaii as a 75-year-old to go there next year and set the next world record. He, he won the Hawaii Ironman when he was 70 and became the first uh, man uh, to break 12 hours uh, on the new course. And so we want to break 13 hours in Hawaii next year. So there's obviously a difference between a, you know 18 or 20-year-old Simon Whitfield and a 75-year-old Bob Nucky. Uh, but the principles stay the same, and that is, it's got to stay fun. If you, you know, if it's not fun, you're not going to be around a year from now, or two, or three, or four. So uh, we work hard, but we enjoy what we're doing. I want to dig into coaching a little bit, and the reason why I dig into coaching is because so many people watching, so many people listening, are trying to help others. They're trying to make the world a better place. They're trying to facilitate other people getting better at whatever it is that they care about the most, whether that's sports or business or music, drama, doesn't matter. And there are some fundamental coaching principles that help us to become better. And whether that's winning the Olympics like Simon, or if it's breaking 13 hours as a 75-year-old Ironman athlete, there's got to be some principles. And you mentioned fun being one of them, but are there other core principles that really help you to help other people? I would say uh, it starts with fun. And when people, I see this often and I, I, it makes me sad when suddenly, you know, some elite athlete or junior athlete is, you know, put a lot of time in, suddenly is feeling stressed because they missed, you know, an interval by a second or whatever the case may be. You started this whole thing because of a love of movement of your body. And now suddenly you're feeling depressed because, you know, you ran at 800 meters in 157 instead of 155 or something, you know, and Really? That's like a, a suicidal moment? Come on now, let's have some fun with this thing. So it's important, I think, to have longevity as part of your team. And so one of the big things that I do, and I encourage every athlete to do, is to find themselves a team of people that will trust, they trust, and that will do that same kind of, um, the exact same kind of model. Like you need people who are gonna believe in you, who are there when you've had a bad day, when you've had a great day whatever the case may be, and who understand that it's not all going to be a linear straight line. So it's important, I think, ultimately to have people that have longevity as part of that team, medical people, coaches, parents, training partners, and generally the people who've been successful have longevity in there. Take a look at Lionel Sanders. It's about longevity. I want to break this little thing down now. Like, you know, it took me ages to get him in the swimming pool with coaches, but now that he's doing that, he's making that next level of improvement. So I think don't expect it's going to come overnight. Don't have people that are going to put all kinds of pressure on you that it has to happen every time. Uh, be there to put a hug. Simon Whitfield's parents, I could not tell if he had won a major race or had flatted and didn't finish. They were the same people. Simon was the same kind of, you know, you go out for supper after and, and that same kind of, you know, joy. He would have joy for another guy who had a great race that day instead of it wasn't his day. So I think it's really important to surround yourself with a team of people who have longevity as the biggest factor. And then all the other things you solve. I mean, you're going to solve it because I've had an injury. How am I going to deal with this? Uh, new equipment's coming out. How am I going to deal with this new kind of bike technology? Uh, you know, when Lori Bowden and, and Lisa Bentley and Heather Fuhr and Peter Reed, uh, the moment that the Olympics were chosen for Sydney in 2000 and draft legal, they immediately went in a different direction to the Ironman because their skill set was not designed as fast swimmers who were going to be draft legal. You know, they were great bikers and runners that didn't have swimming as a strength. So I think having a team of people that can keep problem solving around you, because how can you know what the problem is going to be in 18 months, 24 months, 36 months? 
it's going to change and the needs are going to change. But if you have a group of people who are in it for the long term, uh, problem solvers, make it fun, then we're going to find every one of those solutions. You know, you've got low blood iron issues. We're going to have to deal with anemia for a while. You broke your ankle in a bike accident. We're going to rehab. You know, running now, you have to be under 30 minutes for 10K off the bike at the ITU level. Well, we're going to have to do intervals that are going to get you, you know, down to those kinds of times. So if you have bright people around you, they don't have to have all the answers today. They'll find the solutions in the future. I'd love to know more about your problem solving process. And the reason why is because inevitably, as we go after trying to become great, whatever that happens to be, there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. You alluded to that. It's super important for us to take advantage of the ups, obviously, but then to deconstruct the downs and problem solve to come to a solution. That is so hard, especially because you're maybe disappointed, you're frustrated, you're maybe injured. Like, How do we problem solve more effectively to move laterally and keep moving forwards? Yeah. So I think that that's a bigger life skill than a sports skill, personally. Um, like I think people who are incredibly successful in sport are incredibly successful in life and can transfer that over to business or music or whatever that's going to be. So sports, just a stupid little thing you do, you know, at a certain time in your life, whatever the case may be. So I think ultimately, if we take a look at, at that from the big picture, um, it's really critical, I think, to arm yourself with better life skills than sports skills. So I don't really think it has to be a sports psychologist. I think it is a, you know, a performance stress management person who's really important in your life because it can allow you to put those things into perspective that, you know what, um, and at some point, and this is maybe the hardest thing that I do in my job, is to honestly give the, I don't think this is gonna take you to the Olympics. I don't think you're gonna win the Ironman. Like, do you honestly believe, Greg, that every person can, you know, beat Jan Ferdino, no matter how, you know, like if they just do the right swimming workouts and they do the right stretches? I mean, come on, let's get real. At a certain moment, you also have to say, look, there's a select little group of genetic freaks who might not get there because they don't have the discipline and they don't have a team around them and it's not important enough to them. But if if it is, and now you get to the, you know, the the Blumenfelts and the Sanders and the Jackson Landry's and the Cody Beals and the Jan Verdinos and, you know, Gustav, that bunch of guys, they're all now within like a half of a half of a half a percent. And now those little tiny, tiny things make the difference in their execution. But I could do everything they do and I'm not going to beat them at the Hawaii Ironman. You know, I mean, that's why I got into coaching because I wanted to be in that one percent and I knew it was never going to happen in my body. It's also important at some point, I believe as a coach, not to be a dream killer, but not to blow smoke up their ass either. And so there's this fine line because I know there's a lot more in most people than they believe. So that as a coach is what you're trying to get. That one or 2%, you know, that you know is in there. It's in there, there. Not in Lionel Sanders there, it's in Greg's there. And I can get you under 945 in the Ironman or whatever the case may be. That's not 742, uh, but but a 945 for Greg at, you know, Ironman Arizona or something is pretty damn fine time. Under 11 so, would be awesome for the next one. So you, you get enough. it, right? So yeah. part of it as a coach um, is not to not to kill someone's dream, but there, there are some that I call man boys, as an example, where I know that that is a 
uber early maturing kid who's going to destroy everybody as a 12 year old, destroy everybody as a 14 year old and is not going to even make it as a pro. Like they're going to be dominant as a young athlete. So I'll sit down with the parents, not with the kid at first, but the parents and say, look, you know, you may not be interested in my conversation, but I'm going to share it with you because I think I have a responsibility. I would spend some time on your kid right now and let him have or her have these great experiences of winning things now. Uh, but make sure education is a big part of where they're headed because they're not going to be an elite athlete. They're going to be this 14-year-old superstar with a whole bunch of trophies in their basement. And we need to mentally start to prepare them for self for the time when, you know, I had a kid, for example, that won nationals as a 16-year-old. And I knew that he was a man boy. He, he physically looked like a dude at 16. But his body was going to continue on to grow even more manly. And that was not going to be the endurance type body. You know, it could have been a rugby player later on or something else. But it wasn't going to happen as an endurance triathlete. So I had the conversation with the family. The kid won nationals, went to world champs, had a whole bunch of fun. But he, he understood there was this moment when suddenly I'm doing, I'm training as hard as I ever trained. But these other people are surpassing me now because I weigh 220 pounds and that other guy weighs 154 pounds and his VO2 max at mils per kilogram is 78 and now I'm down at 61 or something. I have those conversations and they're hard because how do you tell a 14 year old, you know, you're not going to the Olympics um, and, and I'm not to destroy them, but I also think that we're preparing them for the world. There's all these other things. Maybe it's another sport, certainly education, Maybe it's leadership, maybe it's coaching, you know, in my case or whatever the case may be. I see myself as a people preparer. You know, my job is to prepare people for the future. And, you know, Andrew York is one of the top OPP officers in all of Ontario. He's been brought into this emergency ERT team, you know, go down the list of where all these people are uh, in their lives and the things that they're doing. Colin Jenkins is a world-class fireman in, in Toronto and, and so forth. So, you know, I'm more interested in the, the contribution that you're going to make when sport ends. And it doesn't mean that I don't expect while you're doing sport to get every ounce. I mean, 99.99% of what you have available to you. Let's squeeze it out. And it may or may not be enough to win the Ironman, make the national team, whatever the case may be. But you should feel great about the fact that you've optimized the stuff you had. We're having this conversation from your incredible location at the quarry you've got the paddleboard set up you've got the swimming section set up you've got i'm sure a place to go running say people come there and put their trainers up afterwards they can do beach swim volleyball bikes, beach volleyball like yeah. you've got it all talk to me about cultivating the athletic life and just making physical mm -hmm. activity part of your your life because let's face it most of the people listening to this podcast may not win the olympics so we're looking just to be more physically active generally in our busy lives and you've done that like you've created the environment for it so i'd love your thoughts on just general it, it physical activity for health on a, on a team process and it started actually in 1994 i was in new zealand and all of these little surf life-saving houses along the beach mount manganui and these places that we stayed and trained in 94 I'm like, wow, a little tiny house that sleeps 25 people in a beach house in the morning. There's 100 kids out doing, you know, surf life-saving skills in the ocean. And here they are at, you know, the 2004 Olympic Games, Bevan Doherty and Hamish Carter come home with gold and silver Olympics, you know, between the two of them uh, in the men's triathlon. I'm like, how does a country of less than 4 million people do this? And it became very clear. 
they created a club, a group, a, a, a pod of people who supported. So when I started C3 with a, a dozen other people in 1995, the whole objective was to raise funds for young athletes, create environments for young athletes, and ultimately it ended up growing into their parents as well because they said, look, I'm Taylor Reed, as an example, his mom and dad were driving him to workouts and, and I have this no sit in the car on your ass policy with my kids' parents. Like, I hate it. They're sitting in a pool watching it. They're sitting at the end of the soccer. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to go. We're going to do a hike. We're going to do a walk. We're going to do a bike. And so parent after parent after parent start a little 5K walking program, learn how to swim, start to do their first bike. I was in Ironman, Arizona in November and Taylor Reed's mom and dad are in their late 60s. The dad, I think, 67 and, and Peggy's around 64, 65. The two of them crossed the line as a husband and wife who had never done a triathlon 15 years before, but were driving their kid to a workout. And now they come to workouts and Taylor lives in Guelph and they're still still at events, right? So a big part of, of creating that culture is that everyone doesn't have to pick the moment that they all want to, to train. Like it can just be a year that we just want you to be physically active for your own blood pressure, your own stress management. And maybe, and that's what our club has done, that's the year that you're going to be the ultimate training partner for someone else. You know, you're going to run for 12K and then get on a mountain bike and bring water for the next 18K when that guy's getting ready for his Ironman. Because three years from now, when you do your Ironman, someone else is going to reciprocate that kind of relationship for you. And that's been this huge success that we've had. Uh, the biggest problem we have initially with the club is people because they hear of an Andrew York, a Taylor, a Christian Marchand, and... Kira Gupta, Baltazar, whoever, and they think, oh my God, you have to be great to be in that club. 90% of our club are people like me who slog along at a six minute kilometer and you know swim at a 210 per 100 or whatever, but we enjoy what we're doing, we love the people. And so I think it's really important in our club's culture and that's what we've done behind us. You know, when I literally kind of lift this back, you can see the beach and people literally, I mean, we're doing this live, but people are, you know, swimming behind me, they're getting paddles or going out doing sup or kayaking or playing volleyball and so we've been able to take a retired sand quarry 25 minutes north of toronto and turn it into a, literally the epic epic simon was just here and he was blown away i mean we had literally the top 100 stand-up paddleboarders in ontario racing on this you know property four weeks ago including Olympians. Larry Kane, who went to the 84 Olympics, was here doing a clinic, and Simon, and Thomas Budai, who's gone to three Olympics. So I believe if you build it, they will come. We created a safe, fun place where families can come, and they just kind of see, hey, my son could try that. My wife could get a swim lesson. Maybe we try that. So it's about being active. And you know what makes me the saddest is when people are all or none. Like they buy the $9,000 bike, they train for a year, they do the Ironman, they sell the bike, and they never do shit the next year, and they're 30 pounds heavier two years later. That is a complete massive failure by everyone involved in the process, in my estimation. So ultimately, what we want to be able to do is to have, say, look, this is the year you're busy. You know, you're building a house, your kids are getting married that year, whatever the case may be. Just come out twice a week, run with us on Sundays, get into the weight room with us one night a week, or something like that, and then fit the other stuff around. So as people have gone through those cycles and they've literally, I, I, what's really fun is to see this like 48 year old guy come back out. He was, you know, uber busy with the kids and his career. And now suddenly the kids are 13. They're coming out with dad jogging and they're all getting the, into shape together. That kind of thing. So for me, it's a life cycle, not just, you know, the two years that you're training for Ironman. Who cares? You're going to find 20 other nuts that'll train with you for an Ironman. But can you find 200 other people that'll be a part of your next 30 years of your life? That's more. I love it. 
tell us about the new book because you've taken the last 40 years of experience and now you've distilled it down into uh, you know something that we can all learn from. We'd love to know more about the new book. Yeah, it's called Chasing Greatness. Uh, my wife uh, was instrumental in every aspect. Uh, if you're lucky, you have one of those people in your life. And for me, it was my wife, Karen Shepley. It was after I would finish talks, people would say, oh my God, I'd like to know more about that. Have you written a book? And so the pandemic was the best thing that ever happened. I traveled in the US and back and I, three different times I had to spend two weeks in the basement by myself with a bit of food at the top of the stairs. So I wrote all 275 pages in three two-week blocks over the pandemic. Uh, then my wife and, uh, and a lovely uh, young uh, editor helped me take all of this crazy stories and put it into 17 chapters. Uh, and then I sent off a lot of the material to people like Lionel Sanders and to Andrew York and to Simon Whitfield uh, because I wanted to make sure that my perception of what occurred was their perception as well. You've seen things when a book comes out and suddenly people are really upset because, no, nah, that didn't happen. It wasn't that way or whatever. Because I wanted this to be a book of joy and celebration and optimism. Uh, so there's, there's incredible stories that people have never heard before. You know, things that have happened at the Olympic Games. You see the nice little sanitized thing, you know, on the television. But literally, as an example, for the uh, Athens Olympic Games, Brenda Irving and I are getting ready. We, you know, I'm nervous. It's my first time I've ever announced an Olympics. I had been in Sydney as the head coach. Now I'm in Athens doing the, the commentary. And we're, I'm in the room. I'm kind of like got my little cheat notes. And with T minus uh, 90 seconds, all of the material, all of the equipment went haywire. It was not working. So they run us to another room only for us to realize we don't have any computer with results. All my cheat notes are stuck on this table in the other room. And in 17 seconds, we're going live to CBC, to the world. Uh, and fortunately, I had announced so many races under so many circumstances that I knew that is Andy Potts' swim stroke. And sure as heck, Andy Potts was the first guy out of the water. And you know, here we go. Uh, eventually, Whitfield and Brent McMahon are, <clears throat> are in that particular race uh, and Hamish Carter wins. So, there's these incredible stories that go on behind the scenes from commentary. Uh, there are these amazing stories about finding athletes and their journeys. Um, you know, one of them is a, is a great kid from Toronto who isn't a triathlete. He was one of the best 110 meter hurdlers in all of Canada, should have gone to the Olympics, had a terrible uh, industrial accident in his summer job where, you know, those cars that you uh, kind of take all the parts off and use them for, uh, for uh, metal. He was inside one of those cars and it was crushed by the machine, not knowing a kid was in there. Oh. He, he, you know, his life changed the next minute and he could have been angry at the world. Here he was the best 110 meter hurdler, you know, in the under 20 category, going to the Olympics, definitely had scholarships and now he can't walk for the rest mm -hmm. of his life. So Anthony Liu is his name, spectacular guy. We talk about him in the book uh, and he comes down and spends, I have my winter training base in Tucson, Arizona and there's this 26 mile incredible mountain called Mount Lemon that is epic. And uh, he lived with me for uh, a couple of winters and eventually he said, you know, I've seen all these triathletes riding up there. I want to try to do it in my arm crank wheelchair. And tears rolling down your face to see this guy who's changed his life so spectacularly that he's attacking a 26 mile marathon, you know, up a mountain. So there's these incredible stories of normal people who do extraordinary things and the team around them. How did they do it? How did they take that setback and turn that into you know, into a positive. So the hardest part for me uh, was the editors, the great stories that landed on the floor, you know, and didn't make it. Uh, as an example, there's a young guy named Rob Crar who's now 40-ish, probably 42. Uh, and he's probably one of the greatest runners in America, but he's a kid from Hamilton. He's a Canadian. 
He won the Western States 100 miler twice. Uh, he's won the rim to rim in the Grand Canyon a couple times, world record times. Uh, and he was a triathlete in my group, you know. And so, you know, these incredible young people, how they uh, have done these amazing things in their lives, how they continue to inspire. And so um, it's a book that um, it, was a, it was a thrill to write. Uh, I got my first demo a couple days ago and to feel it, my wife said, that looks like a book. You know, it's 275 pages, there's pictures, there's great stories. Um, and so, you know, chasing greatness has all kinds of meanings. I mean, it could be a family chasing it with their child. Uh, for me, it was helping others chase greatness. And that, that little tiny contribution, so insignificant, but still important at a certain moment that you're there. You know, you were there when Lionel was having his dark times and, and helped him come down to Caledon and got him into McMaster University and, you know, got him those first scholarships. Uh, and, and importantly, the, uh, you know, the bursaries and things that helped him keep going from a, from a, a you know, a sandwich that he could eat or not. You know, the first Louis Garneau bike, uh, Freshie as a sponsor and Skechers and so forth. So, you know, to watch these guys and now, you know, to go to a race and see what a rock star Lionel is. You know, I mean, people in Brazil and Australia and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, and still we went out for supper in Arizona and, you know, he's taking time with my young athletes to sign autographs and talk to them about their training and that kind of stuff. So it's amazing to just have played a tiny role, but to see how those people, when they needed that at the right moment, uh, have been able to, you know, become these world-class people that inspire all over the world. And remember when, you know, we literally went to the same high school in a town of 2,000 people in Southern Ontario. So there's some great stories. I think that people who know me will have heard some of them, maybe not all of it, uh, but there's definitely stories in there that people have never heard before. A few of them embarrassing. Um, a few of them inspiring, um, and a few of them uh, a tear or two. So it, it, it was a great final product, and I hope that when it comes out, uh, the de debut is going to be the 22nd of July. We're out at the PTO Canadian Open in, um, in uh, Edmonton, and so that's going to be the kickoff of the book that, that weekend, and then we're going to use one whole week of just, you know, lots of draw prizes and contests, uh, et cetera, but as a... Uh, as a get started novice uh, author, you know, I have, I'm not being unrealistic. I know that it's a long slog to get a book from uh, a self-published dude into somebody's home, you know, et cetera. But I've never been afraid of hard work. Barry, if people want to learn more and connect with you online and get a copy, where can they go? Yeah. So if they go to personalbest.ca, uh, we'll have information about that. And, you know, if they want to come out and check out the quarry one day, you know, it'd be lovely to do that. Uh, we're, we're really excited uh, just about where we're at, you know, right now with a lot of people who've been pent up for a couple of years in the pandemic. And so to see races across the country and Ironman Canada back and Montreal hosting the world champs and, you know, the Ontario race directors like John Salt and Jason and all those guys all working hard. It, it's, it's awesome to see. And we, we it's the, the pandemic proved to me we you need to be together. You know, Zoom and all this business is lovely. But there's nothing quite the same as, you know, hopping into the water on a bike ride with your pal or finish up a nice long run. So I, I appreciate all that you continue to do, Greg. I mean, you're, you're spectacular what you do. Seriously, uh, that, the, the wisdom, the knowledge. I get your newsletters. I watch, you know, the stuff that you create. And, uh, you know, you've, you've touched so many lives and continue to make uh, big changes. So thank you for giving me a, a little uh, few seconds of your time. And I hope that some of your viewers will be interested in uh, there's a couple books out there called Chasing Greatness, but if you go Chasing Greatness, Barry Shepley, you'll find it in Amazon and, you know, some of those places will be carrying it for sure.
Barry, you're the best. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing a little bit of your wisdom. Thanks for putting your wisdom out into the world in the form of the book. Thank you for your kind words about the work that I do. It means the world to me to have someone like you, uh, you know, following along and getting something out of it. And uh, we're on the right track. So hope everyone enjoy this. Barry, thank you so much for joining us. Get a copy of the book and we will speak to you again soon. Thank you so much, Greg. Have a great day.